Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exist, to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name's Tim. My name's Marshall. Marshall. English Reformation Day. That's right. Yeah. We'll talk about it. Good times. <laughs> we'll talk about it. Yeah, we'll talk about how much of a Reformation it actually was. And One, one of the things that we tried to do, like there's this balance that we're always walking. Mm-hmm. We want to we plan ahead of time enough that we know we're going to be on talking about the same things more or less yeah but we also try not to do show prep that's true and we try not to have conversations about church history right because there's a real danger of having our best conversations off the microphone it's true i i was almost getting into something and you're like wait 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 wait, wait. save it save yeah it. yeah no and that's cool it's, it's I, a it's a delicate walk it, it keeps things real mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, it sometimes makes it hard to plan. <laughs> <laughs> there were probably three times in prepping for the show. I thought, ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, I wonder if he's going to have that already. Well, who knows? We'll, we can we can find out shortly. One but day we're going to show up with the exact same notes, and it's going to be a 10-minute podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I think, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day about kind of the format of the podcast, and I think... For me, I'm all just kind of about these like chronological dates in order. So I'm kind of more of a play-by-play and you're the color commentary. I, think, I, I agree. I think that's a cool kind of, we, yeah. we kind of bounce off each other that way. But uh, speaking of dates and things happening, I do have a couple fun facts. Let's hear them. We're not getting too much further in the grand historical narrative because it, once again, we have to kind of do that rewind and, and, and right. play again thing. Right. But just so people are aware of what's going on throughout what we're talking about today, um, Europe is at war with itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, England has allied with the Holy Roman Empire against France. And France is supported by Scotland and the Muslim Ottoman Empire. So that is a bit of a background behind what we're going to be talking about that Within Europe, the the big players are all kind of allying with each other, and people are going to switch sides, and there's going to be all sorts of different, you know, implications and how how that impacts the the narrative of of church history. But just so people know, this is not a time of peace in the context of Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, fifteen forty one to fifteen forty two, Francisco de Orellana sails down the Amazon River. Cool. Which is kind of cool. Yeah. I've never been. My wife has. She did yeah. medical missions trips down the Amazon River, at least the portion that's uh, still within Peru before they get into into Brazil. Um, she's wanted to take me there. I have no interest in going. I'm like, so you're saying if I accidentally swallow a mouthful of the water from the river, I'm probably going to die. And there's snakes uh, you'll that'll kill me. You'll be fine. Spiders that'll kill me. I have no interest. <laughs> Place freaks me out. Um... 1543, Copernicus publishes his view that the earth revolves around the sun. What? Heresy. Heresy, Tim. Says the church. <laughs> says, the, says the church. Because At least the at church first. says, no, the earth revolves around the pope. <laughs> <laughs> got him. Okay, that's that's all I got. And then today. later they find out that he meant 
the S-U-N, and they were like, oh. Oh. <laughs> oh, we thought you meant the, the S-O-N, and that's why we were willing to argue with you. I, You know what? I, I know, oh, I, know I say that people are like, that's probably too spicy. Mm. Is it, that's, though? That's probably too spicy. But I'll say this. I've spent a lot of time overseas mm-hmm. in Catholic churches, like just doing tours and stuff. Catholic churches in the U.S. and Canada as well. And uh, you know what I find? I find massive paintings and statues of saints. And usually tucked over in the corner somewhere, there's a nod to Jesus. Mm, It's true. It's true. Yep, I can confirm that through through my own experience in my travels in Europe and, and abroad. Okay, so when we talk about the English Reformation... It's a big thing. Mm-hmm. We're not really able to cover all of it today. There's a sense in which Luther kind of solidifies what Lutheranism is. Yep. And there's not a ton of changes that happen after. There are some, I'm sure. In the same way... I would say the most of the changes are very modern. Yes. Like w- within the last hundred years, I would modern. Agree. I would agree. Yeah. There's a sense in which the reform movement, although we're going to talk about Calvin next week, kind of with those early movers and shakers is kind of solidified Mm -hmm. somewhat fairly early on. The English reformation is a slower burn, right? At least from a theological perspective. Sure. Uh, They did do a lot of burning of people, but that's, uh, we'll get to that momentarily. But what we're going to cover today um, is essentially maybe the first half I, w- I would say I would say so yeah it's it's kind of the first the first major phase of the reformation we'll get them out of the starting blocks yeah yeah exactly yeah and and what we're going to find is that unlike the german reformation which was you know came out of study of scripture and the swiss reformation which was essentially the same thing the initial motives and and causes behind the English Reformation are not so noble, I guess. I I think that's fair. I we'll, we'll get into get into it later, but I think the conclusion that we're going to come to is that the only reason this is tagged a reformation is because reformations were taking place across Europe mm-hmm. and that was how those breaks from Catholicism were being identified. Mm-hmm. So this one just gets lumped in. Yeah. Yeah. And at least in its early stages, um, it's very political as opposed to theological. Right. Let's talk about it. So the first person we need to talk about is a bit of a precursor to all of this. We have to, as, as we're kind of winding back the clock a little bit, we need to talk about William Tyndale. William Tyndale was born in Gloucestershire, I think I'm saying that right, because every time you mention a county name in England, you have to just ignore half the letters mm-hmm. that are that are part of it. Uh, Gloucestershire in around 1494, and as a teenager, he went to study at Oxford. He received his bachelor's and then his master's by his early 20s, and only then was he allowed to study theology, but he was frustrated because... Even as he's studying theology, his courses really didn't include a thorough study of scripture. Yeah, and he 
not only his own education, but just English education as a whole, completely removed from the Bible, and mm. he didn't understand it. Yeah. There, I have a quote here from him. Uh, he, he said, in, in reflecting on his earlier education, his quote-unquote theological education, they have ordained that no man shall look on the Scripture until he is modeled in heathen learning eight or nine years and armed with false principles with which he is clean shut out of the understanding of the Scripture. So in his mind, mm-hmm. he looked back at his formal education and said, it was literally just laying a foundation, laying the groundwork for, for the Scripture to mean nothing to me. Right. If I can, if I can set a bedrock that will allow you to build something that defends against the scripture, then and only then will I give you the scripture. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No. And and but nonetheless, Tyndale Tyndale was a gifted student. He had a gift for languages in particular. I actually in my studies I came across the fact that he he actually was fluent in seven languages other than English. Wow. I mean, who do you know who has languages like that? I mean, I don't I don't know anyone. I know a couple. Do you really? Yeah. You got to remember when I was in South America, mm-hmm. I was working at international Christian schools, and we had some kids that were just uh, like children of diplomats or whatever, whose parents got new contracts every two three years, and they just got bounced from one country to the next, and so they would. I had one kid tell me this is way off. This is an aside way off to the side. I had one kid tell me that his biggest struggle it was that he didn't have an emotional language because mm. he had grown up learning so many languages that he didn't have any depth in any one language. Right. And uh, and so, yes, he could broadly speak and fluently speak multiple languages, but he didn't have a language that was just sort of that language of his heart that that was his emotional language. That's kind of sad, man. <laughs> and profoundly deep for a 17-year-old, yeah, right? Yeah, seriously. But I, I think he passed, so the, the AP exams, the advanced placement mm-hmm. exams, mm-hmm. Uh, I think he passed the AP exams for six different languages. Wow. Um, he just kept taking them because he thought it was funny that he could pass them all. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so at, at 17. Wow. Right? Like Good for he's him. knocking it out. Good for him. Well, William Tyndale, he ended up serving as a chaplain, but he began to get in trouble. Over and over again, he was being reprimanded by superiors. Um, one occasion when he's being kind of put in his place, he says, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God spares my life, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the scripture than you. And he said that to a bishop. Right. <laughs> he said it to a bishop over dinner. <laughs> but he says it in response to what a bishop has to tell him. Mm, okay. So they're having a conversation about the church. And uh, I'm only throwing this in because you, you stole one of my big quotes there. Oh, sorry, man. Uh, it, it says that... Um, so John Fox records this conversation. Mm-hmm. And he's talking to this Catholic scholar, bishop, who who says we are better uh, we were better without god's laws than without the pope's mm. right mm. so so here's the thing here's the thing when people want to look at protestants and catholics 
as the same. As if it were a different denomination. In the same way that you might look at a Baptist and a Pentecostal. It's, it's just not historically founded. It's true. And it's not theologically founded. Mm-hmm. Right? There is a very, very deep and necessary divide. Right? And maybe maybe we use this. It's not a Bible. I put my hand on it as if I was going to point it out as a Bible. <laughs> <laughs> it's Fox's Book of Martyrs. Mm. Uh, there, we may use a similar Bible, not a same Bible. It's true. We may use a similar Bible. We may both talk about Jesus and all of those kinds of things. There might be some overlap and familiarity and common roots. All of that is true. But the left turn taken by the Catholic Church was a hard left. Yeah. And this notion is a primary notion, even within church doctrine. The concept of church tradition. When we in a Protestant world talk about church tradition, what we mean is there's no reason to take down that banner. That banner has been hanging there forever, and we like it. Right? We like hymns. We want to sing hymns every now and then. That's what we talk about when we talk about tradition. When a Catholic talks about tradition, what they mean are extra-biblical teachings. Teachings that are not from Scripture, but come from the church. And so when this bishop says to him, when they're having this conversation and they're coming up against each other, Tyndale is arguing what we need is the Word of God. And what this man is saying is, we have the Pope, and we have the teachings of the church. This is better than the Word of God. And this is why we will forever be divided unless one side repents. Mm -hmm. Uh, R.C. Sproul wrote a book called Are We Together? And the best line of the book is just at the very opening when it says, no one has yet repented mm-hmm. for the differences of the Reformation. Yeah, And so that's true. We remain divided. We remain very divided. Not, not in the same way that we have fellowship with other evangelical churches in town. Like Those divides are deep, theological, foundational. The denial of Scripture as the authoritative word of God level stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. But that Tyndale would look at a bishop and say, give me a second, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to make that plowboy more knowledgeable of God's word than you are. Spoiler. (laughs) (laughs) He does. So... Initially, he requests he requests permission through the appropriate channels to translate the New Testament into English, and he does this in 1523, but he's denied. Yep. Probably in part because he's already built for himself a bit of a reputation as a feather ruffler, if that's even sure. A thing. So what he does is he decides the next year he's just going to leave for Europe, and he goes to Germany, because guess what they're doing in Germany. That's right. They're translating the Bible into vernacular languages. And it's it's possible that he actually studied briefly at, at, at Wittenberg uh, with Luther. Mm-hmm. The, he was the, in Worms for a while. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the name that's recorded in in like the the class list is 
is like a Germanic version of William Tyndale. So it's like this weird kind of variation. So that's caused some speculation. But most historians think that, yeah, no, he definitely was, was at Wittenberg. He was at Worms um, and learning under Luther for a time. Yeah, and and even even in this atmosphere. All right, so he wants to do this in England. And the reason he has to leave it, because there's not a bishop there that would protect him. Mm-hmm. Right. Like there's a there's a bounty out for anyone who would try to translate the Bible into vernacular languages. Uh, So he leaves and goes to Europe. But while he's in Europe, he's bouncing around like crazy. Mm -hmm. Not because he's a free spirit and loves to roam. Right. He's doing this because he has to to save his life. And I found this amazing quote by Johann Cochleus, who is by name German. And speaking to, in part, Luther, I would say probably mostly just based on the German Luther, the, the man is uh, actually, uh, the quick line that Wikipedia gives is worth reading, just because I think it's hilarious. Uh, it says, 1479 to uh, 1552, it was a German humanist, music theorist, and controversialist. controversialist how do you get tagged a controversialist (laughs) but anyway as a catholic and and as a theologian he, he ends up not being good friends with anybody uh but this is what he has to say this is that's sort a funny of, statement, sorry. <laughs> it is, it is. This, is. this is sort of the temperature that he's echoing of the time. The New Testament, translated into the languages of the people, is in truth the food of death, the fuel of sin, the veil of malice, the pretext of false liberty. What? pretext of false liberty (laughs) you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of voyage of the dawn treader okay when they come to the island and they have those one-footed they're invisible at the beginning kind of a thing right i know what you're talking about and the leader says you think freedom is doing what you want to do no Freedom is doing what I tell you to do. <laughs> oh, there are some there are some sharp echoes for our modern day, but uh, I won't get into it. Hold on, this is I'm not even a third of the way through this. Okay. The protection of disobedience. Giving people access to the word of God is the protection of disobedience. Which just begs the question, disobedience against whom? Mm-hmm. And when I said earlier, like those who are still sort of clinging on to the whole, like, I wish Tim wasn't so hard on where the Catholic Church was and is. When you tell somebody being able to read the Bible is going to be the protection of disobedience. I don't know what else you're talking about. Mm -hmm. The corruption of discipline, the depravity of morals. Reading the Bible on your own is the depravity of morals. The termination of concord. The death of honesty. This guy is not afraid of the superlative or hyperbole. (laughs) The wellspring of vices. The wellspring. 
of vices. Reading the Bible on your own <laughs> is going to cause a wellspring. Yeah, don't don't read the Bible, folks. You'll become so immoral. <laughs> what vice comes from scripture anyway? The disease of virtues. The instigation. Now this is where he starts showing his hand. You know, sometimes people are making a point and then they go too far and they show their cards. Mm-hmm. I think he's already done that, but these last really just sort of hammer at home. Uh, after the disease of verse juice, the instigation of rebellion, the mild of pride, the nourishment of contempt, contempt for <laughs> the death of peace, Every demonstrative leader has considered freedom the death of peace. Yeah. The destruction of charity, whatever. The enemy of unity, shut up and get in line. Yeah. Uh, and the murder of truth. Wow. Hmm. Exclamation point, point, point. Doesn't give a hoot for what that guy had to say. No, he doesn't. He translates at first the New New Testament into English, and then in 1526, he begins printing copies of it, which were smuggled from the continent into both England and Scotland. And so, once these copies of of Tyndale's Bible start arriving in Britain. Um, the English clergy immediately condemn his Bible. Oh, and, yeah. And they burn them publicly. And he's then branded a heretic, excommunicated from the church. So Tyndale can't really go back to Britain. Um, so he would stay in Europe. And he's going to continue writing various works. He's going to be tran- continuing his translation work until he's eventually betrayed. Mm-hmm. He's betrayed by a comrade who may or may not have been bought off by English bishops in 1535. And there he's tried for, for heresy. The Henry year. Phillips, by the way, is mm. the man's name. Who, who betrayed Just him. in case you know him and want to say <laughs> that was wrong. Yeah. And uh, Tyndale strangled while tied to a stake and then his body's burned. Yeah. So interestingly enough. The things that he's tried for, he's in his pronouncement of what he's tried for. Number one, maintaining that faith alone justifies. Awesome. That to believe in the forgiveness of sin and to embrace the mercy offered in the gospel was enough for salvation. That was part of his official statement followed by neither the virgin nor the saints should be invoked in prayer and so Tyndale as you said is put to the stake to be burned one of the things that happens time and time again when these guys are put to the stake is in their last gasp they throw out a whole sermon. Yeah. They're given their opportunity and they don't recant. They double down. Yeah. They preach a sermon. Yeah. 
as they're burning kind of a thing. Uh, and so that's why being tied to the stake, they also had a noose around the neck kind of a thing. Tyndale says, let the eyes of the English king be opened mm -hmm. in a prayer. And they yank it tight so that he can't continue and he dies there, mm. those being his last words. Mm. And now, even within an episode, we got to do some bouncing around, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, for sure. We because do. what I want to do is I want to, there's some really great stuff that happens. Mm -hmm. But first, we got to talk about Henry. Yeah. And we'll come back to William at the end of the episode. Sure. Yeah. No, we will. Unless you weren't ready to move on. No, I just had a couple interesting interesting biblical phrases that okay. came that are a legacy of Tyndale's translation work. Okay. There's a few of them. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Let there be light. The signs of the times, my brother's keeper. These are all translations that that Tyndale made that have stayed because they were right. good translations. Because he was good in Hebrew and Greek. Right. And so these types of, these, these renderings that he had of the original languages of the Bible have left their mark on the English language. Mm -hmm. Not just in Bible translations, but just even in our, in our discussion. Right. You know, in, in the way that we, we converse with one another. But yeah, his, his work is instrumental, but, but we have to go back and we have to talk about Henry VIII because... Henry VIII was instrumental in the English Reformation, but it was for less than noble purposes. And a lot of people count him a reformer. A lot. I, I know. Don't like it, that. it turns my stomach too. Right? Feels dirty. Yeah. And so, so is he a reformer? I'm going to say no. No, I think people who worked for him were. I don't think he was. I don't know. I and and, I, and the question, like when you look at reformers, like lists of reformers, and you see Luther, and Zwingli, and Henry, yeah. I, at, at that point, yeah, I'm not just no. I'm a hard no. Yeah, yeah. So let's. But talk, we'll let the we'll let the listener decide. Yeah, let's let's talk about Henry VIII. So he was born in 1491. Uh, to his father Henry the Seventh, had super original, super original names. You know, my name's Timothy Baxter Elmore the Second. In that sort of tradition, I feel like the second is fine, but but the anyways, that's fine. I wanted Caleb to be the third, and Lindsay wasn't having it. Really? Yeah. Oh. How do you feel about that? I don't know. I, I say we start a thing right here on the air. <laughs> nope, I don't need. I'm <laughs> already in Caleb's ear about his. I, I don't need God any more gives enemies. You a son. Boy, if God gives you a son, Timothy Baxter. Is his, Elmore, the third. Is his middle name Timothy? It's Baxter. Oh, it's Baxter. Um, okay, Caleb I see. Baxter. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So Henry the seventh, or sorry, Henry the eighth, rather, would succeed his father the seventh to the throne in 1509. He was only 17 years old, and apparently, his father's dying wish was that he would marry Catherine of Aragon, and he did so uh, shortly after taking the throne. Unfortunately for Catherine, she had had three children in quick succession who were all stillborn in just within the first few years of their marriage. Finally, a daughter, Mary, 
would survive. She'd be the only surviving child from that marriage. Hmm. And we'll talk about her later, not today, uh, because she would become the queen known as Bloody Mary. You bet. And she earns that reputation, but but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So Henry's marriage was was strained, obviously, and, and he was like he it was a known thing. He was a serial adulterer. He had multiple known mistresses throughout his marriage. Um, this is a part of Henry's character that is going to shine through significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, but he really desired a son. Right. And he had an illegitimate son that he kind of recognized, but he couldn't, he could never be a suitable heir. And so he decides that he's going to try to find a new wife mm-hmm. because, because his, his wife, Catherine was actually older than him, which was uncommon right. for the time. Yeah. So she was older than him. She was 40. He was 34. And a woman named Anne Boleyn, who was part of the queen's entourage, who was only 25 at the time. Uh, caught his eye and and you know in his mind he's like okay well this other woman has more childbearing years ahead of her and it's not my fault we're not having a boy yeah it's her fault yeah not understanding actually how right (laughs) how the whole system works i mean technically it's it's the the man's input that determines the gender but that's i don't want to let's keep this a g-rated podcast um henry who up to the point had a good relationship with the Pope. Yeah. He did. Actually, at one point, he actually he actually refutes Luther. He he, he writes something condemning Luther's teaching. Yeah, he writes in defense of the seven sacraments mm-hmm. when Luther taught there were only three. Sorry, Luther, there were only two. There were only two. But yeah. um but he writes he writes defending the Catholic view of the seven sacraments, although some Catholics will go as far as nine, but um, but writes for the the seven sacraments. And, and it just makes you wonder why. Like he doesn't have any real religious background or ambition. Like maybe could it have been pseudepigraphly written? Like someone's like, hey, you know what? you really need to get in with the Catholic church and stay in with the Catholic church. I wrote a thing, sign your name on it, whatever. There's, there's a complex web of political alliances yeah. in Europe, um, which, which actually comes to play here, which is part of the reason the marriages, his dad wanted him to marry Ex- the way that he did. Exactly. Right. Like there's a lot of this going on. Yeah. So he requests an annulment of his marriage. The problem was the Holy Roman emperor, Charles V. We mentioned this guy in previous episodes, unquestionably the most powerful man in the world at the time, was Catherine's nephew. Right. So so there were some different factions at play. So you uh, got family issues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the idea of the king abandoning his wife wasn't going to be popular at yeah, home. Right. But, but Charles V, you know, in, in kind of... In him kind of desiring to protect his own family member, he he laid some serious pressure on the Pope. Yeah. So, so Henry hires a bishop, Thomas Wolseley, um, who happens to be one of his chief advisors to to convince the Pope, um, but he's he's unsuccessful. And some people actually accuse him of intentionally messing up the procedures because he secretly didn't want Henry to get a divorce. Um, and for this reason, he was fell out of favor and he was charged with treason. 
Um, but he died before he was executed. Lucky for him. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people won't have that same mercy right. when it comes to Henry. Henry just ends up marrying Anne Boleyn, that uh, young 25-year-old that he was so enamored with. And, uh, and in 1532, the marriage is declared valid, and the old marriage declared void by Thomas Cranmer. Now, Cranmer uh, was recently appointed as Archbishop of Canterbury, which was the highest, the highest office in the church you could get in England, and still is. Um, he was definitely underqualified for the position, technically, mm-hmm. But he was favored by Anne Boleyn's family. So they're like, they want their daughter to marry the king and and sire the next, you know, the next royal. Why not? And he's a favorite of theirs. And so he gets this sweet gig. And he's like, you want me to say that your last marriage is void and your new marriage is good? Sure. I'll do that. Done. Yeah. (laughs) And so here's the thing. While this is all going on, the teachings of Luther and Zwingli and others have come to the island of Britain. And there are people in England who are in favor of this. Yep. Tyndale's Bible and, and, and the other writings of the, of the reformers have made an impact, especially mm-hmm. in some of the universities. Um, a lot of the people weren't, were careful not to oppose the Pope too loudly or too openly. Right. But... You know they're they're kind of looking at this this friction that's coming between Henry and the Pope as a potential opportunity, but it's complicated. It's messy. It always is. Yeah. It always is. Yeah. There's there's a notable Protestant who's martyred at this time. His name is John Frith, and he'd been influenced by Tyndale, and he'd. Uh, kind of been raised up at Cambridge University. He'd spoken against the Catholic teachings about purgatory and transubstantiation, the idea that the bread and the wine in communion literally become the physical body and blood of Jesus. And for that, he's condemned to death and he's burned at the stake in 1533. So this kind of like more evangelical Protestant reformer is burned at the stake. But Henry's also burning Catholics at the stake. Oh, yeah. Right. Anyone who didn't approve with his decision. Right. So there's a there's a famous nun named Elizabeth Barton who apparently had visions and she would speak publicly against the king. She's arrested and she's hanged for treason. So so King Henry is just hanging people and burning people on both sides of the spectrum. Right. Anyone who steps out of line and, and, and dares to criticize him is an enemy of the state, period. Yep. Yeah. And. And in doing this, he has put himself in a place because he has stepped out of line from the Catholic Church. Yeah. And so Henry is is sort of in a place where he only has enemies. Yeah. He literally has enemies on every side around him, except for those people who are smiling to keep their lives. Mm-hmm. Right? Just sort of nodding along to keep their lives. This is point number one in my argument for he's not a reformer. We have not yet talked about the scripture. It's true. We have not yet talked about the word of God. True. We've not talked about the person of Christ or anything outside of personal and political matters. It's true. And 
the purpose of the Reformation was to say the Catholic Church has walked away from the truths of Christianity. And we want to take that which is and form it again into what it should be. When you form something again, you are reforming that thing. There is none of this conversation going on with Henry. Henry still supports Catholic doctrine. He does. He just doesn't like that it doesn't allow him to do whatever he wants to do. That is not Reformation. <laughs> yeah, that's... He has not yet written the Catholic Church mm-hmm. or spoken to the Catholic Church to say, this is where you've gone wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't even care what the topic is. He doesn't have to claim the solas. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have to do any of that stuff. He could even be wrong about it. But he has not yet come to the church to say, I believe this to be true, and yet you hold it in denial. That's what a reform is. I know. And, and Henry shows his hand in 1534 because he kind of, under his direction, causes the parliament to pass the Act of Supremacy, which recognizes the king as the head of the church in England. Ta-da! And it also abolishes the ability for the bishops in Britain to appeal to Rome. And so, yeah, he shows his hand. This is what he wants. This is like, he's like, I, I'm going to be in charge of the church. I, I am mm-hmm. the authority under God. Um, and, and I get to determine what that right. looks like and what that can, contains. And, and you're not allowed to seek a second opinion. Yeah. So at this point, the Pope at the time, Clement VII, uh, excommunicates the king and Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, and... And, and then basically all of England. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Right. It's like, yeah, and you're all going to hell. All of England. Uh, have a good time. Yeah. So the following year, a man named Thomas More, who had been the advisor to King Henry, who actually had ordered the execution of John Friths, who we just spoke about a couple minutes ago, mm-hmm. he's executed for not acknowledging that Henry is the new head of the church. Once again, he's just killing anybody who doesn't say what he wants them to say. This is his M.O. He declares himself Pope and King. Yeah. Must be nice. Right? (laughs) And then somebody else goes, I don't know. And he's like, Axe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Again, still waiting on any spiritual enlightenment, true or false. Mm-hmm. Just even a, a, an acknowledgement of it. Yeah. Because yeah. that must exist for it to be a reform. Yeah, so the, the following year, the the Anglican Church or the Church of England or whatever, that you know, whatever they were calling themselves at the time, they adopt something called the Ten Articles. This is kind of their very early, very first doctrinal statement of the church. There's going to be many more down mm-hmm. the road. But this one initially in 1536 still held to many overtly Roman Catholic beliefs, right? Like baptism imparts the remission of sins. Penance is necessary for salvation. Good works are necessary for salvation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In a lot of ways, this is this. This is going to be a big one. You ready for this? Okay. I know you're sitting down. You might want to hold on to that chair. The English Reformation is less of a reformation 
and more of a second great schism. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Yeah, so if you totally. re- if you remember back to the great schism a couple months ago, episodes wise, <laughs> hundreds of years ago. Right. <laughs> chronologically. <laughs> right. Uh actually maybe a thousand years ago chronologically, nearly. Mm. Uh the what ends up happening is it's just an argument over who the pope is going to be. And they divide into the Eastern Church and the Western Church. Doctrine, there are some differences of doctrine. But they're minor. But they're minor, and that's what this is again. Henry just doesn't want anyone telling him what to do. And so he creates his own church, but he doesn't change the doctrine. You know why? Because Henry doesn't care about doctrine. (laughs) He doesn't give a rip. (laughs) It's <laughs> so true. You know why? Because he's not a reformer. No, he's not. If you want to call it, you want to call it a schism. Sure, mm-hmm. call it a schism. Mm-hmm. It's not a reformation. Yeah, I didn't plan on. I didn't plan on getting this hostile. That's okay, man. Do but it. I'm feeling it. Let the flames burn, Henry Wood. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, <laughs> so, so the one thing he does do, it the practically, I guess is that he starts systematically closing down monasteries mm-hmm. under the argument that they are full of sin and full of all of these problems, which may have very probably well been true. Probably not the furthest thing from the truth. Yeah, probably. There might be some legitimacy yeah, in that one. There, there would. But they're also symbolic of these like tiny, these, almost these tiny embassies yeah. of the, of, you know, kind of, the Bishop of Rome within England. So right. these are, these are power centers of the Roman Catholic church that he's going to close down for his own reasons. Yeah. And people don't like this because there's a lot, no. there's a lot that these monasteries bring to the local economy. Yes. And so there's socioeconomic fallout. There's revolt, let alone revi- religious fallout. Yeah. There's revolts. Yeah. They're, they're put down, but they're, they're, and what do you think revolts. Henry does with a revolt? <laughs> he says, you're right, guys. I should have thought of that. Thanks for letting me know. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And then Henry eventually gets frustrated with his wife, Anne Boleyn. And she is actually very outspoken, very intelligent woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually very, very Protestant in her own personal theology and really championing the, the cause of reform. You know, you know what I think of when I think about their relationship? I think about those instances where you think you know what you want. Mm. And then you find out I, I, the thing that I thought I wanted wasn't at all what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And that's who she is for him. Yeah. Right? Consider the fallout of this choice for him. He has taken an entire nation out of the church, formed an entire other church. Basically, like there's Taking on this woman as his wife is a huge thing. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're talking... Thousands and thousands. If you want to consider to the modern age, millions of people have been affected by him desiring to marry this woman. 100%. Yeah. And maybe more. And she's, she's going to speak her mind. She's not going to fall in line. Mm-hmm. She's not exactly what he thought he was getting. Yeah. In, in some bad for him, but in really great ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, he gets tired of her outspoken nature. The very things that attracted him to her in the first place ends up irritating him. So he accuses her of 
treasonous adultery. Yeah. And on really like on really flimsy evidence. It's really flimsy evidence. Mm-hmm. I don't think she did anything wrong. I kind of read through some of the the historical background of it, but nonetheless, she is executed in 1536. And he remarries and he remarries again. And and throughout kind of the the latter reign of Henry VIII, there's all this flip-flopping that happens theologically. He'll reintroduce the doctrines of transubstantiation. He's going to require celibacy for the priest once again. And then he's going to flip-flop. And this is going to cause some friction um, amongst those who are more the reformers who have been close to the king. And this included Thomas Cromwell. And here's the thing about Thomas Cromwell. He was an advisor to Henry VIII for a long time. Mm-hmm. He was a trusted member of the inner circle. Um, and he was essentially beheaded for refusing to enforce one of these pendulum swings back towards Roman Catholic doctrine. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this is a guy who is is on the inside. And Henry doesn't care. He'll kill whoever doesn't step in line. Yeah, so on the on the issue of flip-flopping... This is the part when we were in William Tyndale that I wanted to get to. Okay, yeah, yeah. But we had to lay some groundwork for. This is the conclusion of Fox's Book of Martyrs entry on William Tyndale. When he prayed his last words, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. That final prayer was for the bully King Henry VIII whose pursuit of a male heir had already cost Anne Boleyn her life and Catherine her marriage. So full of his own power and pomp would this king's eyes ever fall favorably on Tyndale's English Bible? Indeed, they did. They did. Two years after Tyndale's death, King Henry authorized the distribution of the Matthew Bible, which was basically Tyndale's work. And then, in 1539, all printers and sellers of books were ordered by the king to provide for the free, in quotes, free and liberal use of the Bible in our own maternal English tongue. Mm -hmm. Tyndale's dream comes true. It just makes me think of Joshua. Hmm. That which you meant for evil... God intended for good. Mm. Joseph. Uh, Joseph, sorry. Joseph. Yep. Uh, Yep. That which God intended for evil, or what you intended for evil, God intended for Mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. A means of saying, God is going to bring about his redemptive plan. Yep. And he's going to make great his name. Mm -hmm. Even if people try to step in and through evil, bring it to its close, to silence it, it won't be. Mm -hmm. And, and this is where we get this really cool sort of flux because we have this man who is evil in a number of degrees. Oh, yeah. Unquestionably. Who is, has, in and my very outspoken opinion today, has nothing to do with the Reformation. Agreed. Right? He. This is just a power grab. Yet, yet, God uses that greedy and fickle nature of his to bring scripture to the English people in mass. Yeah. And 
eventually the actual English Reformation. Yeah, yeah, which we'll get to in the future. <laughs> but we'll t- we'll talk about the beginnings of it, anyways. I mean, me like Henry continues on his just kind of just bloody rampage of killing people on both ends of the spectrum mm-hmm. and and kind of what what happens is there there are those kind of around him these these two different factions the kind of traditionalists who are trying to urge henry back towards the roman catholic church and the kind of more evangelical progressives who are trying to push kind of th- this whole kind of quasi reformation further into a true reformation and essentially they're 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 constantly just kind of uh, accusing the others of being against the king, and he's just he's just again just mm-hmm. murdering people on both ends of the spectrum. But eventually, he dies in fifteen forty seven, and at this point in his life, he is extremely ill. He's extremely obese. Um, he has he's covered in painful boils and gout and and so many. He's just miserable by the end of this. And he dies at the age of 55. And, and by the time he dies, he's had six wives throughout his life. Um, and a couple of them he's executed. A couple of them he's shut away. Um, one dies in childbirth and the other one outlives him. But the prospects for succession were, were thin at this point. And his nine-year-old son, Edward VII, or sorry, Edward VI, rather, took the throne Um He's nine years old. Mm-hmm. He doesn't actually hold any real power. It's held within a regency council, but, but the, but because he's kind of been raised, uh, with a bit of a Protestant education, many of the Protestants in England are really excited. They think this is going to be a King Josiah, who's going to bring the law of God back to the people, and he's going to be this wonderful and amazing ruler. He doesn't live very long. Um, but initially, at least while he is, while he's ruling, certain things start to kind of happen, right? A lot of the, the, the saint worship and the various kind of, um, extra biblical traditions start to kind of fall by the wayside. The, the, the teaching of the English church on the Lord's Supper goes from a Roman Catholic view, transubstantiation to the Lutheran view to the reformed view of spiritual presence. So they're, they're moving away from it becoming actually the body and blood. It's not, we're not re-sacrificing Jesus every time we have the mass. And then the most defining shift comes when Thomas Cranmer, who is still the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, writes the, the Book of Common Prayer. Mm-hmm. And the Book of Common Prayer is essentially the liturgy or the foundation of the liturgy of the Anglican church. And, and and in a lot of ways to us as modern evangelicals, it would seem very Roman Catholic, but it really departs from the Roman Catholic Latin mass in a number of ways. The, the most significant way is just that it's in English. I mean, you know, the, that the, that the defined way of doing church in England is in the English language, uh, but also the teaching on communion is much closer to how we would understand it today. It's got a much more personal focus. It's not about the holy man doing special things on your behalf, but it's a much more, m- much more personally focused of the individual before God mm-hmm. and their relationship with him. 
And so I think that's the kind of the, I mean, this is after Henry and it, during the rule of his son, who is, I mean, he's a, a, a tween at this point. Sure. Um, but, but we see the beginnings of true reformation in the nation of England. However, yeah, there's a bumpy road ahead. So, so I see this not as the beginning of the English Reformation, but as the prequel. Mm, okay. There's a foundation that has to exist. Because if we went to English Reformation, people would be like, whoa, what, where did this Anglican church come from? Right. Right? Yeah. Like, what happened to the Catholic church? How did... So this is the prequel, in my opinion, mm-hmm. for the English Reformation that will come. Yeah. That's kind of the way I see it. Yeah, I get that. But here's where I find this history starting to get even more exciting. Uh, at least at least I hope it's more exciting for our listeners. And, and the reason is, now all of a sudden, you start seeing things with your own eyes that make sense. Mm-hmm. We've talked about Luther, and you look down the road at the Lutheran church, and you think, I know your story. Yeah. Right? Today... The Anglican, or if you're listening in the States, the Episcopal Church, right? This is their story, their foundation, mm-hmm. right? Where did where they come from, mm-hmm. right? And it, even even two weekends ago, right, we had a wedding. Yeah. That was the a Wolfcamp and Walker, right? <laughs> Different church backgrounds. Yeah. One of them, Lutheran. Mm-hmm. The other one. And about this, and it's in their names. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, like, being able to see how the, the, the Reformation really just sort of resets everything on the church and how these traditions carry on so clearly today. Yeah. Right? It, it's, to me, this is exciting. Yeah. This is, where you, this is where you get to start looking around you and going, that's why that thing exists. Mm-hmm. And that's why that one looks different than that one, mm-hmm. theologically or physically. Yeah. Right. The buildings look different. Right. Mm-hmm. Based on where these churches came from. Mm-hmm. Right. A yeah. church from the PCA, the Presbyterian Church, is going to be shaped differently than a Lutheran church because their theological foundations come from similar but different countries yeah and they carry that in their architecture mm-hmm. yeah it's true right whereas yeah. baptist churches look different too mm-hmm. why yeah because we have an english heritage and an english architecture travels with that this is what a church looks like and that comes with you to the new land mm-hmm. and so i think i think this is where it starts to get really concrete yeah and tangible yeah no and i agree with that and and so next week we're going to talk about John Calvin, as we're kind of working through the historical narrative and kind of work up through that. And there's going to be some interesting things we talk about. But when we when we come back to the nation of Britain in the future, we're going to begin talking about uh, Puritanism. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about uh, Presbyterianism and Congregationalism. And eventually we're going to get to to the origins of the Baptist Church as well. And it starts all of those things come out of what happened and what we discussed today. Yep. From this flawed, adulterous, wicked, selfish king. And yet the Lord was able to use that that situation 
for his glory and to mm-hmm. bring people to a great understanding of who he is and and for like as you said for his word to be circulated within the english language and and so it's just a testament to how god in god in his sovereign plan is able to operate um, yes there are sinful people in the mix and they'll have to account for the things that they've done but within that god is still working for his good purposes. And so it's an encouraging thing to see as we work through this church history. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it is, I mean, just to kind of keep going with what I was saying uh, in a wrap up, when you give to people who are a part of Tyndale as a missions group, what are they doing? They're translating Bibles. Yep. Right. Yep. Or Wycliffe. Same thing. Wycliffe. Yeah. Uh, you have people that are going attending Knox Presbyterian. Yep. It doesn't matter what town you're in. There's always a Knox. Whatever town you're in, there's a Knox Presbyterian. I can't wait for John Knox. I love. I'm drinking out of a coffee mug with John Knox's face on it. I am pumped for John Knox. I like him. Yeah, well, he's coming. He's coming. But these these things just become more and more the thing. That's true. It's true. Right. Yep. And and one of the biggest divides in the Reformation that exists today is the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. And and maybe you've heard those statements, and you're mm-hmm. like, well, what's, what is the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism? Well, guess what? Next week we're going to talk about a man named Calvin. Yes, we are. And not long after, we'll talk about Arminius, yeah. right? And it's just, it's this is where it just all sort of becomes very familiar territory, I think, for quite a number of people. Yeah. So, yeah. Invite people along. Tell them how much you love it, even if you just moderately like it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This pro- this podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada and is produced by Alex Walker. See you next time.